Good morning, everyone, and uh, good morning if you're with us online. It's great to see you all here. I don't know if you've heard the story of Queen Elizabeth when she was in a church service. Not our current Queen Elizabeth, but the first one. And the preacher had been praying for a long time. And she got fed up. And she interrupted him and said, ask him for something. Because this preacher had been full of lots of fine words, but he hadn't asked God for anything. So as we come this morning, I just want you to spend a few seconds thinking about what you want to say to God as we worship. Because all of us come with very different needs, very different situations. So if you were to be asking God for something, what would that be? Just spend a few seconds in prayer for yourself and then I'll pray. Oh Lord our God, we thank you that even though you are the great and glorious God, you hear each one of us as we pray pray to you. We ask, Lord, that as we come to you now, our worship will be pleasing to you and we will have a real sense of connection with the God of heaven and earth. Amen. So our first song is one where it encourages us whether we're people who are having a great time or people having a really difficult time to come and praise our God. So let's stand and join in worship.
So our Bible reading is in Luke chapter 19 and we're starting at verse 28. And for the children, something I'd like you to look out for. Because some people here are told to be quiet. And I'm pretty sure that the children were involved in this. I want you to notice, what were the children doing when they were told to be quiet? So let's read God's word, starting at verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their coats on the the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King, who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if they were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you... Even you had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade round you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they didn't find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging Onto his words. So, John's going to do the children's talk now. Oh, good morning to all of you children. Lovely to see so many of you here. Who's enjoying the sun here? You are? Anyone else? Yeah, lots of you are enjoying the sun. I'm enjoying the sun very much at the moment as well. You can see such lovely things when you're out in the sun, can't you? Now, I want to tell you about something I did um, the other week. Um, I went with my family up to London. Has any of you been to London? Any of you young ones here been to London? Yeah, any of you been to a place called Greenwich Park? 
Any of you? No? Well, we went up to London. We went actually to have a barbecue. And then we had a walk from my brother-in-law's house to um, Greenwich Park. And at the very top of Greenwich Park, I don't think it's not that great the fact, but you can just about see. You stand up on the top of Greenwich Park and you can just see right across London. You can see absolutely everything. So you can see some of the buildings. There's Canary Wharf there. You can see the Millennium Dome on the right-hand side there. there. And then if you go round the corner a little bit, you've got um, the Olympic Stadium or West Ham Stadium. And over here, you've got the Shard. You've got a fantastic view. And uh, we've been up there before, and we really wanted to go back up there because me and Steph said, oh, what a fantastic view it is up there. Such a beautiful place to be and how amazing it is. And um, we were thinking, though, when we were up there the other week, we were thinking, it is an amazing view, but all them buildings that have been built that we think is such an amazing thing to look at, all these stadiums and Canary Wharf, one day they're just going to end up in ruins, aren't they? They're going to fall down. They're not going to last forever. They're going to fall down because man had made them, and ultimately the things that man makes come crumbling down. Now, I'm going to put some um, slides up on here, and some of you in here might recognise some people on these slides, and they're in a different place, so let's see if we can get this next one up. So, this is up in Scotland, and um, there's um, some people up on top of the rock there. Does anyone know who that might be? Esme, do you know who that might be? And Stephen here, yeah, there's three people that we know very well, and they're actually those three up on top of this big mountain up in Scotland. And I was looking at these pictures as they were coming through, and I was looking at them and thinking, look at what God has created. Look at this cliff top that they're on. And um, it's been there for thousands of years, hasn't it? This is what God's created. It's not crumbled, it's not ruined, it's still absolutely amazing and beautiful. And there's another one here, so they're up on the top of another mountain, and you can just see through. They're looking onto more mountains and uh, hilltops and ravines. And it got me thinking about this verse here. It got me thinking about, let everything that has breath praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And I think we have got so much to be thankful for and to praise God for, don't you? Each and every single one of us. And especially when I look at the sunshine outside at the moment. I was out in my garden yesterday and I was seeing all the flowers, the plants and all creation around me. And I was thinking, how often do we stop and think and look and see what God has given us in abundance. It is so beautiful, it's so wonderful, it's so amazing. And us children and us adults, we can all stop while we've got breath in us and we can think about all this wonderful creation God has given us and we can praise God for it, can't we? It's so wonderful that we can praise God for that. So I just want to say to you this morning, you guys, you you children here, when you look around at the moment in this beautiful weather and you see such amazing things, Stop and think, God has given us all this great creation, all these wonderful things to look at, and we can praise God. And when we look at these amazing things, whether it's flowers, trees, mountains, rivers, seas, whatever it might be, think to yourself, God created that, and we can praise him for that. Now, just quickly before I finish, I want to speak to some of you older ones here, maybe you older teenagers, or 20s, or people here that might not know God. Um, I was watching... uh, a football match last night, and, or yesterday afternoon, I'm sure many of you saw what had happened. A guy called Christian Eriksen was playing football, 29 years old, and all of a sudden he collapsed on the floor and nearly died. And it got me thinking, you know, he's an athlete who's 29 years old, who's got absolutely everything that he could want. Wealth, fame, money, you name it. And that's been taken away from him just like that. I'm thankful that he's doing well now and he's recovering but the chances are he's not going to be able to play football again. And his life could have ended um, yesterday evening just like that. And I just want you guys to just think, you know, you might not think about God 
at the moment. You might not think that you need him in your life. But your life, you know, could just turn just like his did. I think I'm healthy, but after what I saw yesterday, I know that I can't take my life for granted. And please don't take your life for granted. And as this verse says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And I pray that each and every single one of you that might not know him now might stop, think what you're doing with your lives, and maybe you'll be able to stop and praise the God for what he has given you. Should we just pray? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this beautiful weather that we're seeing around and about us, but we thank you so much for the beautiful creation that you have given us. Lord, we only have to look out of our windows where we live in this wonderful place in the world. We can see such great things that you have given us, the flowers, the trees, the rivers. We can travel to the sea, to the hills, and we thank you for it. And I pray that each one of us will look around and see that your hand is upon it and that we can praise you for it while we have breath in our lungs. But I pray also, Lord, for those in here that do not know you, Lord, that might not want anything to do with you. I pray, Lord God, that they will realise that our lives will not go on forever. We cannot plan what is around the corner. And circumstances can change so dramatically. And I just pray from the bottom of my heart that if there's anyone here that does not know you, that they might stop, they might think about what's happening in their lives, where their life is going and how short it might be, and that they will turn to know you. And Lord, while they have breath in their lungs, that they will grow to love you and to praise you. Amen. Thanks, John. Let's uh, continue in prayer. Oh, Lord our God, we do thank you that we are allowed to come to the King of Kings, the majestic, all-powerful God. And Lord, we ask that you will help us to get a very real sense of who you are and what you're like. Oh Lord, your world world, paints a picture of nations gathering together, fighting against you, and you sitting there and laughing at them. Oh Lord, we, we pray that you will help us to have that sense of being still and knowing that you are God. Oh Lord, we do pray for the leaders of our world. We pray that as they meet together, that you will give them wisdom. Oh Lord, we pray that if it could be your will, you will turn them from their pride in their own ability, their selfish agendas, and that you will turn them to you. Oh Lord, we do thank you for the good decisions that they make. And Lord, we pray that they will make many more good decisions and that they'll stop making bad decisions. But most of all, Lord, we do pray that there will be a, a turning of them to you. Oh Lord, we pray for our own government. Lord, you know they have decisions about many things to make. And soon they're going to be making a decision about what, what to do next with COVID. Lord, we pray that you will help them to make the right decision. And Lord, we pray for ourselves. Lord, we ask that you will help those of us who know and love you to be good citizens, to be 
supportive of our leaders wherever we can be and to be active in our, our democracy in trying to move things towards things that please you. Oh Lord, we, we do know that when it comes down to it, what needs to happen is hearts need to be changed, lives need to be changed, and that's your work. And we know that we can't do that work, but we can tell people about the great Saviour. And we ask, Lord, that you will help John as he does that shortly. Oh Lord, we pray that you'll give us ears to hear what you're saying, that it will change our lives, and that the truth about you will bubble through so that we tell others, that we share with others, that our passion is about the King, the Saviour, the one who rescues people from darkest night and brings them into your glorious family. Oh Lord, we thank you that no one is shut out. There is no one who is too bad or, or too ignorant or too stupid or too anything to come to you. And Lord, we, we ask that that good news will go to many, many people. And Lord, we pray that you will help us to be still and to know that you're God in a world that's always changing. Oh Lord, we know that our health isn't certain and we pray for those who have health worries, those who have pain. Oh Lord, we ask that you'll relieve their pain and that you'll help them to trust you and not to worry. Oh Lord, you, you know how we depend on ourselves so much. Help us to depend on you. And we pray especially for Gemma and Morgan as they are waiting for their wedding plans. And we pray not just for them, but for the many Christian couples who are looking forward to their wedding day. Oh Lord, we pray that you will give them your peace and we pray that you will help them to be more focused on what it means to live for you than the details of the wedding day. Oh Lord, you know what we're made like. You know how immediate things come in and pressure us and worry us. But Lord, that beautiful picture of a bride and her husband mirroring what it means to belong to you is so powerful and so long-lasting. And Lord, we pray for Christian marriages that they will mirror more and more of that so that more and more might see the difference you make in this needy world. Oh Lord, we are so glad that your word goes out to many different people. Oh Lord, we pray that what people have heard in Rooted and Sunday School will make, make the children want to belong to you and produce good fruit. And will make the young people want to be shaped in your image, not in the image of those who seem to be so wise, those who put pressure on them. Oh Lord, we pray that you will help them to renew their minds 
and know you and know the joy of knowing you. And Lord, we pray especially for those who are coming to the end of their exam period or perhaps are looking forward to September. Oh Lord, I pray that they will be able to use this time that they've got now to develop their talents for serving you, to look for opportunities to learn more about you and to do what you would want them to do. Oh Lord, do do save them from wasting their lives in these next weeks and months. Oh Lord, you know everything. And you know that there's lots in our lives that do not please you. Oh Lord, we are sorry. And we pray that you'll help us to be more sorry and to steer away from those things that upset you and grieve you, the wrong things that we choose to do. Oh Lord, help us not to do them. And help us to know the peace of being forgiven. Oh Lord, we pray that as we continue in worship, we'll have a sense of your presence with us. Amen. Our next voice, our next song declares the great truth that Jesus is Lord. Right from the beginning of this world, right up to the end, Jesus is Lord. Let's stand and worship.
Well, it's good to see you here this morning. Good to have you watching in. Uh, we still have some listening in through the telephone mechanism, so I'd like to welcome them as well as they still tune in to our services. We are in Luke 19. There's been a big build-up. Luke has been tracking the journey of Jesus to Jerusalem for ten chapters. We came to a key verse in Luke chapter 9 and verse 51, which set the scene for the second half of Luke. It said, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Nine times uh, we've been reminded of him heading for Jerusalem as we've gone through ten chapters that have tracked that journey. In today's passage, he reaches his destination. You see, it's featured quite strongly in our passage, verse 28, and when he said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Verse 41, and when he drew near and saw the city. Verse 45, key thing in Jerusalem, and he entered the temple. The story of the Minas has set our bearings. We're knowing that there is a king who's going to be acknowledged as king, go away and return to us. How is his approach to Jerusalem going to shape up? What is going to happen as he reaches his destination? The king is coming, if you like, to his capital. This is a significant moment. We've been awaiting it for half the book of Luke, almost. Today we're going to follow through the three events which take us, if you like, over the boundary of Jerusalem. There's going to be three main things. And I warn you, it's a bit of a roller coaster. It's a bit of a roller coaster. Uh, The geography is like that. Uh, We arrived at Jerusalem, our hotel, at uh, 12.50am, so 10 to 1 in the very early morning. Our alarm call went off at 6.30 to call us to get up and get going, breakfast, coached, and our first morning of our stay we went to the top of the Mount of Olives and we went to do the walk that Jesus did or the the road that he took, direction he took into Jerusalem. And one of the things that strikes you about it is it's very steep going down from the Mount of Olives, especially on the paved roadway which is now very worn. You're, You're concerned about your footing as you go steeply down the side into the area which is then crossing the brook Kidron and then you go up the other side to one of the gates of Jerusalem. So in a way it's like a roller coaster geographically. But more than that, we find as we go through this passage, there is an emotional roller coaster. There's an emotional roller coaster. The three events that we're going to look at are characterised by three very different and intense emotions. We see that as we go through. The third one, the emotions come out a little bit more perhaps some of the other Gospels, but they are behind what happens here in Luke. 
So let us go to our first one, which is joy the king enters. Joy the king enters. We're in our first part, verses 28 to 40. And the description is very kingly. The arrangements, his arrangements are very kingly. He's purposing to enter Jerusalem. That's been his sort of long-term goal. Despite what is ahead, he is not reluctant to head to Jerusalem. He desires to have an animal to ride on. The pilgrims heading for Jerusalem got off their animals to go into Jerusalem. Jesus does the opposite. Kingly, he's riding into Jerusalem. But it's a a humble, lowly animal. It's a donkey. He's going to bring in a different sort of kingdom. He's a different sort of king. It is an unused animal, we're told in these verses, implying a special use and purity. He knows in advance how the animal that's borrowed will be acquired. I think it's supernatural knowledge that he knows how the situation will work out. This is a king in control of the details. He sends two of his disciples to get the donkey for himself and it all works out just as Jesus says it would. In verse 32 we're told, so those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. The words to secure the donkey were told twice. It's repeated twice. It's significant. The Lord has need of it. The Lord has need of it. Uh, The king is commandeering his vehicle to go into the capital. The animal, if you like, will serve him in what he needs. So the arrangements are kingly, and the arrival is kingly. Cloaks are put on the animal and it says that Jesus is set on it. There's a sort of enthronement flavour to what happens here. Cloaks are spread along the road. We know from other Gospels, palms are as well, hence Palm Sunday. Cloaks are spread on the road. It's a bit like a royal carpet. And the crowd is full of joy and praise. They recall the amazing miracles that he has done. Just recently he's healed the eyes of blind Bartimaeus and he's raised Lazarus from the tomb. And now is their chance to openly worship, rejoice, celebrate, admire. Verse 37. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. The chorus acknowledges Jesus as King. They take the words of 
greeting from uh, Psalm 118. Words of greeting said to a king returning after victory. They insert actually the word king into it as well. They acknowledge his kingship as they quote in verse 38, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This was a psalm that was sung regularly at festival times. It's the last of the Hallel Psalms, Psalm 113 to 118, and it was being fulfilled before their eyes as the king was coming to his capital. The end of verse 38 also seems significant. I hadn't noticed this before. Does it ring any bells with you? The end of verse 38 Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Glory in the highest. When was the last time you heard words like that? Well, when the birth of the Saviour was announced in Luke chapter 2, praise erupted in, amongst the angels, the heavenly host, and they said, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. It was after the news of great joy for all people, as a saviour had been born, and now that saviour was coming into Jerusalem to accomplish the act of salvation on the cross, and it is glory to God in the highest again amongst the people. So there is joy as the king enters. But the joy is not shared by the hyper religious. The Pharisees are not a happy bunch. Verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Jesus says it's impossible for there to be a cover-up of what's happening. Verse 40. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The very stones, if you like, would whistleblow what's going on if the tongues were quiet. It's as if Creation itself is acknowledging the coming of the king. And if the stones knew that the king has come, do you? Do I recognise that the king has come? Would you say you felt that sense of joy and praise at the coming of Jesus, that Jesus coming to his capital to accomplish salvation? Are we like the Pharisees who really want to lower the profile of Jesus? Or can we enjoy the moment to acknowledge Jesus as King, God's Son, come to save, entering Jerusalem? To zip back to our first Song, are we people of the risen King 
who delight to bring him praise. There's a sense of joy in your heart as you think of the coming of the king and what he is going to do. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Rejoice and praise. Celebrate, acknowledge, admire. You know, knowing Jesus is the king who's come to save brings joy. Perhaps life is pretty joyless for you at the moment. Perhaps you feel you have no real hope or prospect or things are very gloomy. You know, if you understand and believe in your heart that Jesus is the King who came to save, there is great reason for joy and great reason for praise. So joy, the King enters and we see him heading to the city. What will happen when it comes into view? As instead of seeing London, as we saw on the children's talk picture, as Jesus sees Jerusalem coming into view, what, what, what will the reaction be as he reaches his destination and catches the panorama? Well, we see that the mood of the moment changes. It changes dramatically as we go into verses 41 to 44 where we see weeping the king sees. Weeping the king sees. Before Jesus has, if you like, borne his heart, bore his heart of grief over Jerusalem. He used the words of a bit like David lamenting for his son. We saw that in Luke 13 and verse 34. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. And here he catches the view of the city from the Mount of Olives coming down. You get a a good view of the city. That's a photo we took on that morning. You look across to ancient Jerusalem. The the gold dome is the place on Temple Mount where the temple was. You get a good view of Jerusalem. And as he sees Jerusalem, tears come to his eyes. In fact, the word wept suggests deep, audible sorrow. Wailed. He burst into sobbing. There's a church built on the rough spot where this would have happened. It's called the Dominus Flevit. There's our picture of it. The Lord wept and it's built in the shape of a teardrop. From inside that uh, church building you have a view of the city. There you are from inside looking out at the city in the rough area that Jesus looked and he, he wept as he viewed Jerusalem. 
why is the king so upset at seeing the city? You see, he sees not only the city, but he sees its attitude. He sees its foolishness. He sees its blindness. He sees its rejection. He sees its coming judgment. Verses 42 to verse 44 show what he says as he weeps saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear, down the ground, tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And this was fulfilled a few decades later, AD 70, the culmination of the siege from the Romans. Jerusalem had rebelled against Rome and the city was set under siege. The suffering was awful. Under God it received serious solemn judgment not so much because of its rejection of Rome but because of its rejection of God and his son the Lord Jesus Christ if you like the city couldn't tell the time we sometimes say to children, can you tell the time when they're quite young and they're just as, perhaps at school, they're used to some clock faces and they're getting the hours sorted out and the quarter past and the half past. Can you tell the time? And maybe the children can tell the time. But it's a question for us adults. Can you tell the time? Can you tell the time? Jerusalem, in this way, couldn't tell the time. Verse 44 because you did not know the time of your visitation. God was visiting with mercy. The saving king was coming to Jerusalem and you were oblivious. You wouldn't accept it. You refused. You rejected it. You didn't know what the time was. And that was so significant. Peace was in the name of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. This is Salem is peace. Peace would have been the language of Jerusalem. As people walked around, they said, hi, hello, good morning. Now they said, shalom, they said, peace to one another. That was the Jewish way of greeting. But even though the city was a city of peace, and the people kept saying peace, they didn't know what was meant for their peace. Under their noses, things were happening which would accomplish peace, be the way of peace, and they were oblivious. Verse 42, Would that even you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Well, the episode, it tells us about the, the heart of Jesus, his compassion. It tells us about the sadness of rejection of Jesus. 
I also find, I don't know if you find this, it, it makes me think about our attitude to those who reject Jesus. Paul, later in his letter, speaks of the people of the Jews who he loved and said, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He felt deeply for those who didn't know peace through Christ. Some of us feel great sadness as we look on to close family members who don't yet know peace. But for many of us, it's all too easy for us to be unmoved, unconcerned, as we look on at our neighbours who are oblivious to why Jesus came, as we look on as our town, which is so largely unconcerned about its need of Christ, as we think of our nation, which just doesn't seem to be spiritually convicted to any large degree despite what's happened in the last 18 months. Samuel Rutherford was a a great hymn writer. He was a minister in Scotland in the 1600s, a place in the southwest of Scotland called Anworth, a town or village, not quite sure how big it is. Uh, Perhaps his most famous hymn is The Sands of Time Are Sinking, uh, there are some extra verses which aren't in the hymn that we sing. Uh, one of them makes me think a lot. I have quoted it before. It's relevant to this point. He says, Fair Anworth, he's talking of his town, his village, Fair Anworth by the Solway, to me thou still art dear. Even from the verge of heaven I shed for thee a tear. Oh, if one soul from Anworth meet me at God's right hand, my heaven will be two heavens in Emmanuel's land. Maybe you've heard of William Carey. He was the sort of father of modern missions, Baptist missionary to India in the 1800s. Before he went on his mission trips earlier in his life, he was a teacher at one point teaching geography. And when he was teaching geography, sometimes he would burst into tears, pointing at different points on the map and saying, well, pagans, oh, how little they know about Christ, they need to hear about Christ. He was moved to tears at the thought of the regions of earth that didn't know the Gospel. Well, you may not have a special call like William Carey, but... Is there anything like that going on in our hearts of concern and compassion? A Christ-likeness over those who reject the gospel of peace? Jesus weeps as he comes into the city. Interestingly, King David was hounded from Jerusalem and he went out of Jerusalem at this point, the Kidron Valley, up the Mount of Olives, And he, it's recorded in Samuel, went weeping as he was rejected 
by the city and went off. Here Jesus, the king son of David, returning to Jerusalem, crossing the Kidron Valley, weeping because of the rejection that still remains in Jerusalem and the way it's going to treat the coming king. But maybe your heart is like Jerusalem, rejecting and dismissive of Jesus. Maybe you've not been softened by talk of judgment, it just goes over your head when the person down the front starts all of this talk about judgment. Well, maybe instead will you be softened by the thought that your attitude is something that led Jesus to weep as he saw the sadness of conditions like yours and your desperate need for peace? Will will the weeping of Jesus break through where perhaps the words of judgment from us have failed? Are you ignoring the offer of peace as the king comes in a saving work into Jerusalem? Weeping, the king sees. Well, it, it, it is a roller coaster, isn't it, of emotions, and we're not finished yet. The, the third main event is when Jesus enters Jerusalem. And uh, in Luke, we see he, he makes for the temple. There's more on this in the other Gospels, it's condensed in Luke. But the mood changes again. And here, Lastly, we have indignation. The king purges or cleans. Indignation, that's righteous anger. Anger here. Joy, weeping, anger. We're in verses 45 to 48. Mark tells us this is the next day. The Gospel of John has told us of a similar event to this much earlier in Jesus' ministry. This is the second time that something like this happens. Jesus enters the temple and here we see some actions which surprise us. We think of gentle Jesus and that's true. He says, I am meek and lowly of heart. There's a gentleness in Jesus. But we've also seen that sometimes his words are strong and challenging and here we see his actions are strong and challenging. So animals and and birds were were needed for the tens of thousands of pilgrims that came to Jerusalem for the Passover. In the past it seems that those had been dealt with and provided for and bought more on the Mount of Olives but it seems that in recent years the high priest Caiaphas had introduced all of this to the temple courts. And it seems, from what I understand, that maybe the priests made a bit of a pocket from the move and now the temple courts were filled with, with business and it brought with it greed and profiteering and stealing and cheating. And it brought it into the space which was especially reserved as a space for prayer and a place for seeking God's mercy. And Jesus is righteously enraged with what he sees. He drives out the storeholders, 
verses 45 and 46, he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Mark tells us that he overturned the tables of the money exchangers. He tells us that he pushes over the chairs of those who sell pigeons. I remember hearing of Andrew Rao doing a Sunday school talk here. It would have been a few decades ago now. It wasn't even there, but I remember hearing of it. It stayed in my mind. He set up a, a table down the front and put lots of coins on it and was describing a bit of what happened at one point in the life of Jesus. And then he got to the point and he turned over the table You can imagine all the children seeing all these coins and all the noise and then what's happening. It was a dramatic event. What is happening? It's so forthright. It's almost violent. Jesus doesn't say, I beg your pardon, Uh, would you mind perhaps finishing that at the end of the day so that we can have it clear tomorrow? And uh, Please sir, can you just widen the gangway a little bit so that the pilgrims can make their journey through? turns it over, drives them out. The last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, predicted this would happen, Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He's a lowly king on a donkey, a saving king on a cross, but he's also a righteous king who blows away hypocrisy. He comes to set up a kingdom which is genuinely devoted to God which is God-honouring, which is pure. And in a way, what happens here, isn't it a picture of what he does in people's hearts and lives? In fact, one of the things that the temple points to, amongst other things, is God living in the life of Christians. And as he lives in the life of Christians, in his kingdom, He purges, he drives away, he clears the things that are wrong. We've been sampling 2 Corinthians in some of our evening services and a few weeks' time we'll we'll get to this point in 2 Corinthians 6 which is very uh, on point here. 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 16 says this, For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So our hearts, our lives are meant to be God's temple. And as a result of that, there should be some purifying and cleansing. Chapter 7, verse 1, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. 
and in the Corinthians who are being brought to repentance over their lifestyle, that happened, verse 11, for see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal. So can I ask, have you experienced the driving out work of Jesus? The things which were in your life, which shouldn't have been in your life, have you seen them pushing out as you've come to acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Saviour? Has it sent some things packing, kicked them into touch? Maybe the cheating, the lying, the selfishness, the hypocrisy. It wasn't this what Jesus was doing for Zacchaeus as his life had been one of cheating and selfishness and greed. Then Jesus comes as king into that man's life and these things are, are got rid of. There is a clearing, a purging. Have you experienced that? Are you experiencing that? Jesus purifying, purging in your life. Have you found him, if you like, claiming back things in your life which should have been devoted to God, but which have been sort of almost abused and used for selfish ends? You used to come to a place of worship and you'd come just for, for fun or for socialising or for reputation. But now you're seeing above those things, some of those things have their place, but you're coming now to acknowledge God, to learn from him, to worship him. It's an expression of a heart devoted to God and the, so the abuse of the place has been removed and instead a, a purged heart is looking to worship God. In the past you just crept up a, a Christian label, if you like, to keep your, your family at bay or, or to look okay before people who are religious friends, but now you're gen genuinely concerned for God. Purging work has come as the King has come into your life. That is what Jesus does in the work of the Kingdom. Indignation, the King purges. So we've had quite a roller coaster, haven't we? Joy, the king enters. Weeping, as the king views the city. Indignation, as the king purges the temple. And Jesus' encounters with the temple are not finished yet. We leave the chapter with him teaching in the temple. The religious leaders are seeking his destruction but the ordinary people are hanging on every word. And in the next week or two we'll start to see some of the things that he taught and the way he discussed with them in the temple area of Jerusalem before we get to the Passion. Lots to take in as we look at these three events in Luke. Let's pray.
Oh Lord, there is joy and praise in our hearts because the King has come. Because he's come to Jerusalem to die on the cross for people like us. We do feel it. We wish we felt it more. But we adore, we publicly acknowledge Jesus as King. We celebrate what he came to do. We thank you for sending him. Oh Lord, as we see Jesus weeping with the panorama of the city before him, we're reminded of the seriousness and sadness of rejecting God's King, his terms of peace, his visit of mercy. And we pray that you would keep us from being in that position ourselves. Or we pray that you would help us to be moved and concerned and thoughtful for others who at this current time seems to be oblivious to the gospel of peace through Jesus. And Lord, we acknowledge that Jesus is righteous and pure. He seeks a pure, genuine kingdom without hypocrisy and selfishness and deception. Lord, we are reminded in Jeremiah that the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Lord, we thank you where you have started to drive things out of our own lives as king. And we pray you continue to do that work that we may be increasingly devoted to you in our lives as we should be. So make these lessons that we have looked at as we have followed Jesus heading into Jerusalem, make them real and living in our hearts for our good. We pray in his name. Amen.